Section One of the Brown Fairy Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brown Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. What the Rose Did to the Cypress, Part One. Once upon a time, a great king of the East, named Saman Lapash had three brave and clever sons, Tamasp, Kwamas, and Almas Rubaksh. One day, when the king was sitting in his hall of audience, his eldest son, Prince Tamasp, came before him, and after greeting his father with due respect, said, O oh, my royal father, I am tired of the town. If you will give me leave, I will take my servants tomorrow and go into the country and hunt on the hill skirts, and when I have taken some game, I will come back at evening prayer time. His father consented, and sent with him some of his own trusted servants, and also hawks and falcons, hunting dogs, cheetahs, and leopards. At the place where the prince intended to hunt, he saw a most beautiful deer. He ordered that it should not be killed, but trapped or captured with a noose. The deer looked about for a place where he might escape from the ring of the beaters, and spied one unwatched close to the prince himself. It bounded high and leaped right over his head and got out of the ring, and tore like the eastern wind into the waste. The prince put spurs to his horse and pursued it, and was soon lost to the sight of his followers. Until the world-lighting sun stood above his head in the zenith, he did not take his eyes off the deer. Suddenly it disappeared behind some rising ground, and with all his search he could not find any further trace of it. He was now drenched in sweat, and he breathed with pain, and his horse's tongue hung from its mouth with thirst. He dismounted and toiled on, with bridle on arm, praying and casting himself on the mercy of heaven. Then his horse fell and surrendered its life to God. On and on he went across the sandy waste, weeping and with burning breast, till at length a hill rose into sight. He mustered his strength and climbed to the top. There he found a giant tree whose foot kept firm the wrinkled earth, and whose crest touched the very heaven. Its branches had put forth a glory of leaves, and there were grass and spring underneath it and flowers of many colors. Gladdened by this sight, he dragged himself to the water's edge, drank his fill, and returned thanks for his deliverance from thirst. He looked about him, and to his amazement saw close by a royal seat. While he was pondering what could have brought this into the merciless desert, a man drew near, who was dressed like a fakir, and had bare head and feet but walked with the free carriage of a person of rank. His face was kind and wise and thoughtful, and he came on and spoke to the prince. O oh, good youth, how did you come here? Who are you? Where do you come from? The prince told everything, just as it had happened to him, and then respectfully added, I have made known my own circumstances to you, and now I venture to beg you to tell me of your own. Who are you? How did you come to make your dwelling in this wilderness? 
To this the fakir replied, O oh youth, it would be best for you to have nothing to do with me, and know nothing of my fortunes, for my story is fit neither for telling nor for hearing. The prince, however, pleaded so hard to be told that at last there was nothing to be done but to let him hear. Learn and know, O oh young man, that I am King Janagir of Babylon, that once I had an army and servants, family and treasure, untold wealth and belongings. The Most High God gave me seven sons, who grew up well-versed in all princely arts. My eldest son heard from travelers that in Turkestan, on the Chinese frontier, there is a king named Quimus, the son of Timus, and that he has an only child, a daughter named Mir Afrus, who, under all the azure heavens, is unrivaled for beauty. Princes come from all quarters to ask her hand, and on one and all she imposes a condition. She says to them, I know a riddle, and I will marry anyone who answers it, and will bestow on him all my possessions. But if a suitor cannot answer my question, I cut off his head and hang it on the battlements of the citadel. The riddle she asks is, What did the rose do to the cypress? Now when my son heard this tale, he fell in love with that unseen girl, and he came to me lamenting and bewailing himself. Nothing I could say had the slightest effect on him. I said, O oh, my son, if there must be fruit of this fancy of yours, I will lead forth a great army against King Quimus. If he will give you his daughter freely, well and good, and if not, I will ravage his kingdom and bring her away by force. This plan did not please him, he said. It is not right to lay a kingdom to waste and destroy a palace so that I may attain my desire. I will go alone. I will answer the riddle and win her in this way. At last, out of pity for him, I let him go. He reached the city of King Quimus. He was asked the riddle and could not give the true answer, and his head was cut off and hung upon the battlements. Then I mourned him in black raiment for forty days. After this, another and another of my sons were seized by the same desire, and in the end all my seven sons went, and all were killed. In grief for their death, I have abandoned my throne, and I abide here in this desert, withholding my hand from all state business and wearing myself away in sorrow. Prince Tomas listened to this tale, and then the arrow of love for that unseen girl struck his heart also. Just at this moment of his ill fate, his people came up and gathered round him like moths round a light. They brought him a horse, fleet as the breeze of the dawn. He set his willing foot in the stirrup of safety and rode off. As the days went by and the thorn of love rankled in his heart, he became the very example of lovers and grew faint and feeble. At last his confidants searched his heart and lifted the veil from the face of his love, and then set the matter before his father, King Sama Lapash. Your son, Prince Tamas, loves distractedly the Princess Mir Afruz, daughter of King Quimus, son of Timus. Then they told the king all about her and her doings. A mist of sadness clouded the king's mind, and he said to his son, If this thing is so, 
I will, in the first place, send a courier with friendly letters to King Quimus, and will ask the hand of his daughter for you. I will send an abundance of gifts, and a string of camels laden with flashing stones and rubies of Badakhsham. In this way I will bring her and her suit, and I will give her to you to be your solace. But if King Quimus is unwilling to give her to you, I will pour a whirlwind of soldiers upon him, and I will bring to you in this way that most consequential of girls. But the prince said that this plan would not be right, and he would go himself and would answer the riddle. Then the king's wise men said, This is a very weighty matter. It would be best to allow the prince to set out, accompanied by some persons in whom you have confidence. Maybe he will repent and come back. So King Saman ordered all preparations for the journey to be made, and then Prince Thomas took his leave and set out, accompanied by some of the courtiers, and taking with him a string of two humped and raven-eyed camels, laden with jewels and gold and costly stuffs. By stage after stage, after many days' journeying, he arrived at the city of King Quimus. What did he see? A towering citadel whose foot kept firm the wrinkled earth and whose battlements touched the blue heaven. He saw hanging from its battlements many heads, but it had not the least effect upon him that these were the heads of men of rank. He listened to no advice about laying aside his fancy, but rode up to the gate and on into the heart of the city. The place was so splendid that the eyes of ages had never seen its like, and there, in an open square, he found a tent of crimson satin set up, and beneath it two jeweled drums with jeweled sticks. The drums were put there so that the suitors of the princess might announce their arrival by beating on them, after which someone would come and take them to the king's presence. The sight of the drums stirred the fire of Prince Tamas's love. He dismounted and moved towards them, but his companions hurried after and begged him first to let them go and announce him to the king, and said that then, when they had put their possessions in a place of security, they would enter into the all-important matter of the princess. The prince, however, replied that he was there for one thing only, that his first duty was to beat the drums and announce himself as a suitor, when he would be taken as such to the king, who would then give him proper lodgment. So he struck upon the drums, and at once summoned an officer, who took him to King Quimus. When the king saw how very young the prince looked, and that he was still drinking of the fountain of wonder, he said, O oh youth, leave aside this fancy which my daughter has conceived in the pride of her beauty. No one can answer her riddle, and she has done to death many men who had had no pleasure in life, nor tasted its charms. God forbid that your spring also should be ravaged by the autumn winds of martyrdom. All his urgency, however, had no effect in making the prince withdraw. At length it was settled between them that three days should be given to pleasant hospitality, and that then should follow what had to be said and done. The prince went to his own quarters and was treated as became his station. King Quimus now sent for his daughter and for her mother, 
Guruk, and talk to them. He said to Mibra Fruz, Listen to me, you cruel flirt. Why do you persist in this folly? Now there has come to ask your hand a prince of the East, so handsome that the very sun grows modest before the splendor of his face. He is rich, and he has brought gold and jewels all for you, if you will marry him. A better husband you will not find. But all the arguments of father and mother were wasted, for her only answer was, O oh, father, I have sworn to myself that I will not marry, even if a thousand years go by, unless someone answers my riddle, and that I will give myself to that man only who does answer it. The three days passed, then the riddle was asked, What did the rose do to the cypress? The prince had an eloquent tongue, which could split a hair, and without hesitation he replied to her with a verse, Only the omnipotent has knowledge of secrets. If any man says, I know, do not believe him. Then a servant fetched in the polluted, blue-eyed headsman, who asked, Whose son of life has come near its setting? took the prince by the arm, placed him upon the cloth of execution, and then, all merciless and stony-hearted, cut his head from his body and hung it on the battlements. The news of the death of Prince Tamasp plunged his father into despair and stupefaction. He mourned for him in black raiment for forty days, and then, a few days later, his second son, Prince Quamas, extracted from him leave to go too and he also was put to death. One son only now remained, the brave, eloquent, happy-natured Prince Amas Rubaksh. One day, when his father sat brooding over his lost children, Amas came before him and said, O oh, father mine, the daughter of King Quimus has done my two brothers to death. I wish to avenge them upon her. These words brought his father to tears. O oh, light of your father, he cried, I have no one left but you, and now you ask me to let you go to your death. Dear father, pleaded the prince, until I have lowered the pride of that beauty and have set her here before you, I cannot settle down or indeed sit down off my feet. In the end he too got leave to go, but he went without a following and alone, like his brother, he made the long journey to the city of Quimus, the son of Timus, and like them, he saw the citadel, but he saw the heads of Tamas and Quamus. He went about in the city, saw the tent and the drums, and then went out again to a village not far off. Here he found a very old man, who had a wife a hundred and twenty years old, or rather more. Their lives were coming to their end but they had never beheld face of child of their own. They were glad when the prince came to their house, and they dealt with him as with a son. He put all his belongings into their charge and fastened his horse in their outhouse. Then he asked them not to speak of him to anyone and to keep his affairs secret. He exchanged his royal dress for another, and next morning, just as the sun looked forth from its eastern oratory, he went again into the city. He turned over in his mind without ceasing how he was to find out the meaning of the riddle and to give them a right answer, and who could help him, and how to avenge his brothers. He wandered about the city, but heard nothing of service, for there was no one in all the land who understood the riddle 
of Princess Mir Afrus. One day he thought he would go to her own palace and see if he could learn anything there. So he went out to her garden house. It was a very splendid place, with a wonderful gateway and walls like Alexander's ramparts. Many gatekeepers were on guard, and there was no chance of passing them. His heart was full of bitterness, but he said to himself, All will be well. It is here I shall get what I want. He went round outside the garden wall, hoping to find a gap, and he made supplication in the court of supplications and prayed, O holder of the hand of the helpless, show me my way. While he prayed, he bethought himself that he could get into the garden with a stream of inflowing water. He looked carefully round, fearing to be seen, stripped, slid into the stream, and was carried within the great wall. There he hid himself till his loincloth was dry. The garden was a very Eden, with running water amongst its lawns, with flowers and the lament of doves, and the jug-jug of nightingales. It was a place to steal the senses from the brain, and he wandered about and saw the house, but there seemed to be no one there. In the forecourt was a royal seat of polished jasper, and in the middle of the platform was a basin of purest water that flashed like a mirror. He pleased himself with these sights for a while, and then went back to the garden and hid himself from the gardeners and passed the night. Next morning he put on the appearance of a madman and wandered about till he came to a lawn where several pert-faced girls were amusing themselves. On a throne, jeweled and overspread with silken stuffs, sat a girl the splendor of whose beauty lighted up the place, and whose ambergis and a tear perfumed the whole air. That must be Mirafruz, he thought. She is indeed lovely. Just then, one of the attendants came to the water's edge to fill a cup, and though the prince was in hiding, his face was reflected in the water. When she saw this image, she was frightened, and let her cup fall into the stream, and thought, it is an angel, or a peri, or a man. Fear and trembling took hold of her, and she screamed as women scream. Then some of the other girls came and took her to the princess, who asked, What is the matter, pretty one? Oh, princess, I went for water, and I saw an image, and I was afraid. So another girl went to the water and saw the same thing, and came back with the same story. The princess wished to see for herself. She rose and paced to the spot with the march of a prancing peacock. When she saw the image, she said to her nurse, Find out who is reflected in the water and where he lives. Her words reached the prince's ear. He lifted up his head. She saw him and beheld beauty such as she had never seen before. She lost a hundred hearts to him and signed to her nurse to bring him to her presence. The prince let himself be persuaded to go with the nurse. But when the princess questioned him as to who he was, and how he had got into her garden, he behaved like a man out of his mind, sometimes smiling, sometimes crying, and saying, I am hungry, or words misplaced and random, civil mixed with a rude. What a pity, said the princess, he is mad. As she liked him, she said, he is my madman, let no one hurt him. She took him to her house and told him 
not to go away, for that she would provide for all his wants. The prince thought it would be excellent if here, in her very house, I could get the answer to her riddle. But I must be silent on pain of death. Now in the princess's household there was a girl called Dil Aram. She it was who had first seen the image of the prince. She came to love him very much, and she spent day and night thinking how she could make her affection known to him. One day she escaped from the princess's notice and went to the prince and laid her head on his feet and said, Heaven has bestowed on you beauty and charm. Tell me your secret. Who are you? And how did you come here? I love you very much, and if you would like to leave this place, I will go with you. I have wealth equal to the treasure of the miserly quorum. But the prince only made an answer like a man distraught and told her nothing. He said to himself, God forbid that the veil should be taken in vain from my secret. That would indeed disgrace me. So with streaming eyes and burning breast, Dil Aram arose and went to her house and lamented and fretted. Now whenever the princess commanded the prince's attendance, Dil Aram, of all the girls, paid him attention and waited on him best. The princess noticed this and said, Oh, Dil Aram, you must take my madman into your charge and give him whatever he wants. This was the very thing Dil Aram had prayed for. A little later, she took the prince into a private place, and she made him take an oath of secrecy, and she herself took one and swore, By heaven, I will not tell your secret. Tell me all about yourself, so that I may help you to get what you want. The prince now recognized in her words the perfume of true love, and he made compact with her. Oh, lovely girl, I want to know what the rose did to the cypress. Your mistress cuts off men's heads because of this riddle. What is at the bottom of it, and why does she do it? Then Dilaram answered, If you will promise to marry me and keep me always amongst those you favor, I will tell you all I know, and I will keep watch about the riddle. Oh, lovely girl, rejoined he, if I accomplish my purpose so that I need no longer strive for it, I will keep my compact with you. When I have this woman in my power, and have avenged my brothers, I will make you my solace. O oh, wealth of my life and source of my joy, responded Dilaram, I do not know what the rose did to the cypress, but so much I know that the person who told Mir of Rufs about it is a negro whom she hides under her throne. He fled here from Wak of the Caucasus. It is there you must make inquiry. There is no other way of getting at the truth. On hearing these words, the prince said to his heart, O oh, my heart, your task will yet wear away much of your life. He fell into a long and far thought, and Dilaram looked at him and said, O oh, my life and soul, do not be sad. If you would like this woman killed, I will put poison in her cup so that she will never lift her head from her drugged sleep again. O oh, Dilaram, such a vengeance is not manly. I shall not rest till I have gone to the walk of the caucus and have cleared up the matter. Then they repeated the agreement about their marriage and bade one another good-bye. The prince now went back to the village and told the old man 
that he was setting out on a long journey, and begged him not to be anxious, and to keep safe the goods which had been entrusted to him. The prince had not the least knowledge of the way to walk of the Caucasus, and was cast down by the sense of his helplessness. He was walking along by his horse's side when there appeared before him an old man of serene countenance, dressed in green and carrying a staff who resembled Kira's. The prince thanked heaven, laid the hands of reverence on his breast, and salaamed. The old man returned the greeting graciously and asked, How fare you? Whither are you bound? You look like a traveler. O oh, reverend saint, I am in this difficulty. I do not know the way to walk of the Caucasus. The old man of good counsel looked at the young prince and said, Turn back from this dangerous undertaking. Do not go. Choose some other task. If you have a hundred lives, you would not bring one out safe from this journey. But his words had no effect on the prince's resolve. What object have you, the old man asked, in thus consuming your life? I have an important piece of business to do, and only this journey makes it possible. I must go. I pray you, in God's name, tell me the way. When the saint saw that the prince was not to be moved, he said, Learn and know, O youth, that Wak of Quaff is in the Caucasus, and is a dependency of it. In it there are jinns, demons, and pyrrhus. You must go on along this road till it forks into three. Take neither the right hand nor the left, but the middle path. Follow this for a day and a night. Then you will come to a column on which is a marble slab inscribed with Cufic characters. Do what is written there. Beware of disobedience. Then he gave his good wishes for the journey and his blessing, and the prince kissed his feet and said good-bye, and with thanks to the causer of causes took the road. After a day and a night he saw the columns rise in silent beauty to the heavens. Everything was as the wise old man had said it would be, and the prince, who was skilled in all tongues, read the following Cufic inscription. O travelers, be it known to you that this column has been set up with its tablet to give true directions about these roads. If a man would pass his life in ease and pleasantness, let him take the right-hand path. If he takes the left, he will have some trouble, but he will reach his goal without much delay. Woe to him who chooses the middle path. If he had a thousand lives, he would not save one. It is very hazardous. It leads to the Caucasus and is an endless road. Beware of it. The prince read and bared his head and lifted his hands in supplication to him who has no needs and prayed. O friend of the traveler, I, thy servant, come to thee for succor. My purpose lies in the land of Quaff, and my road is full of peril. Lead me by it. Then he took a handful of earth and cast it on his collar and said, O earth, be thou my grave, and O vest, be thou my winding sheet. Then he took the middle road and went along it day after day, with many a silent prayer, till he saw trees rise from the weary waste of sand. They grew in a garden. And he went up to the gate and found it a slab of beautifully worked marble, and that near it there lay sleeping, with his head on a stone, a negro whose face was so black that it made darkness round him. His upper lip 
arched like an eyebrow, curved upward to his nostrils, and his lower hung down like a camel's. Four millstones formed his shield, and on a box-tree close by hung his giant sword. His loincloth was fashioned of twelve skins of beasts, and was bound round his waist by a chain of which each link was as big as an elephant's thigh. The prince approached and tied his horse near the negro's head. Then he let fall the bismillah from his lips, entered the garden, and walked through it till he came to a private part delighting in the great trees, the lovely verdure, and the flowery borders. In the inner garden there were many deer. These signed to him with eye and foot to go back, for that this was enchanted ground. But he did not understand them, and thought their pretty gestures were a welcome. After a while he reached a palace which had a porch more splendid than Caesar's, and was built of gold and silver bricks. In its midst was a high seat overlaid with fine carpets, and into it opened eight doors, each having opposite to it a marble basin. Banishing care, Prince Almas walked on through the garden, when suddenly a window opened, and a girl, who was lovely enough to make the moon writhe with jealousy, put out her head. She lost her heart to the good looks of the prince, and sent her nurse to fetch him, so that she might learn where he came from, and how he had got into her private garden, where even lions and wolves did not venture. The nurse went, and was struck with amazement at the sunlike radiance of his face. She salaamed and said, O oh youth, welcome. The lady of the garden calls you. Come. He went with her, and into the palace, which was like a house in paradise, and saw seated on the royal carpets of the throne a girl whose brilliance shamed the shining sun. He salaamed as she rose, took him by the hand, and placed him near her. O oh, young man, who are you? Where do you come from? How did you get into this garden? He told her his story from beginning to end, and Lady Latifta replied, This is folly. It will make you a vagabond of the earth and lead you to destruction. Come, cease such talk. No one can go to the Caucasus. Stay with me and be thankful, for here is a throne which you can share with me, and in my society you can enjoy my wealth. I will do whatever you wish. I will bring here King Qualmus and his daughter, and you can deal with them as you will. O oh, Lady Latifta, he said, I have made a compact with heaven not to sit down off my feet till I have been to Walk of Quaff, and have cleared up this matter, and have taken Mirafruz from her father, as brave men take, and have put her in prison. When I have done all this, I will come back to you in state and with a great following, and I will marry you according to the law. Lady Latifta argued, and urged her wishes, but in vain. The prince was not to be moved. Then she called to the cup-bearers for new wine, for she thought that when his head was hot with it, he might consent to stay. The pure, clear wine was brought. She filled a cup and gave to him. He said, O oh, most enchanting sweetheart, it is the rule for the host to drink first, and then the guest. So to make him lose his head, she drained the cup, then filled it again, and gave him. He drank it off, and she took a lute from one of the singers, and played upon it with skill, 
which witched away the sense of all who heard. But it was all in vain. Three days passed in such festivities, and on the fourth the prince said, O oh, joy of my eyes, I beg now that you will bid me farewell, for my way is long, and the fire of your love darts flames into the harvest of my heart. By heaven's grace, I may accomplish my purpose, and if so, I will come back to you. Now she saw that she could not in any way change his resolve. She told her nurse to bring a certain casket which contained, she said, something exhilarating which would help the prince on his journey. The box was brought, and she divided off a portion of what was within and gave it to the prince to eat. Then, while he was all unaware, she put forth her hand to a stick fashioned like a snake. She said some words over it, and struck him so sharply on the shoulder that he cried out. Then he made a pirouette and found that he was a deer. When he knew what had been done to him, he thought, all the threads of affliction are gathered together. I have lost my last chance. He tried to escape, but the magician sent for her goldsmith, who, coming, overlaid the deer horns with gold and jewels. The kerchief which that day she had had in her hand was then tied round its neck, and this freed it from her attentions. The prince deer now bounded into the garden, and at once sought some way of escape. It found none, and it joined the other deer, which soon made it their leader. Now, although the prince had been transformed into the form of a deer, he kept his man's heart and mind. He said to himself, Thank heaven that the Lady Latifa has changed me into this shape, for at least deer are beautiful. He remained for some time living as a deer amongst the rest, but at length resolved that an end to such a life must be put ill some way. He looked again for some place by which he could get out of the magic garden. Following round the wall, he reached the lower part. He remembered the divine names and flung himself over, saying, Whatever happens is by the will of God. When he looked about, he found that he was in the very same place he had jumped from. There was a palace, there the garden and the deer. Eight times he leaped over the wall, and eight times found himself where he had started from. But after the ninth leap, there was a change. There was a palace, and there was a garden. But the deer were gone. Presently, a girl of such moonlike beauty opened the window that the prince lost to her a hundred hearts. She was delighted with the beautiful deer, and cried to her nurse, "'Catch it, if you will.' I will give you this necklace, every pearl of which is worth a kingdom. The nurse coveted the pearls, but as she was three hundred years old, she did not know how she could catch a deer. However, she went down into the garden and held out some grass, but when she went near, the creature ran away. The girl watched with great excitement from the palace window and called, Oh, nurse, if you don't catch it, I will kill you. I am killing myself shouted back the old woman. The girl saw that nurse tottering along and went down to help, marching with the gait of a prancing peacock. When she saw the gilded horns in the kerchief, she said, It must be accustomed to the hand and be some royal pet. The prince had it in his mind that this might be another magician who could give him some other shape, but still it seemed best to allow himself to be caught. 
so he played about the girl and let her catch him by the neck. A leash was brought, fruits were given, and it was caressed with delight. It was taken to the palace and tied at the foot of the Lady Jamila's raised seat. But she ordered a longer cord to be brought so that it might be able to jump up beside her. When the nurse went to fix the cord, she saw tears falling from its eyes, that it was dejected and sorrowful. Oh, Lady Jamila, this is a wonderful deer. It is crying. I never saw a deer cry before. Jamila darted down like a flash of lightning and saw that it was so. It rubbed its head on her feet and then shook it so sadly that the girl cried for sympathy. She patted it and said, Why are you sad, my heart? Why do you cry, my soul? Is it because I have caught you? I love you better than my own life. But in spite of her comforting, it cried the more. Then Jamila said, Unless I am mistaken, this is the work of my wicked sister Latifa, who by magic art turns servants of God into beasts of the field. At these words the deer uttered sounds and laid its head on her feet. Then Jamila was sure it was a man and said, Be comforted. I will restore you to your own shape. She bathed herself and ordered the deer to be bathed, put on clean raiment, called for a box which stood in an alcove, opened it, and gave a portion of what was in it to the deer to eat. Then she slipped her hand under her carpet and produced a stick to which she said something. She struck the deer hard. It pirouetted and became Prince Almus. The broidered kerchief and the jewels lay upon the ground. The prince prostrated himself in thanks to heaven and Jamila and said, O oh, delicious person, O oh, Chinese Venus, how shall I excuse myself for giving you so much trouble? With what words can I thank you? Then she called for a clothes wallet and chose out a royal dress of honor. Her attendants dressed him in it and brought him again before the tender-hearted lady. She turned to him a hundred hearts took his hand and seated him beside her and said, O oh youth, tell me truly who you are and where you come from and how you fell into the power of my sister. Even when he was a deer, the prince had much admired Jamila. Now he thought her a thousand times more lovely than before. He judged that in truth alone was safety. So he told her his whole story. Then she asked, O oh Prince Almas Rubakshish, do you still wish to make this journey to Wak of Quaff? What hope is there in it? The road is dangerous, even near here, and this is not yet the borderland of the Caucasus. Come, give it up. It is a great risk, and to go is not wise. It would be a pity for a man like you to fall into the hands of jinns and demons. Stay with me, and I will do whatever you wish. O oh, most delicious person, he answered, you are very generous and the choice of my life lies in truth in your hands. But I beg one favor of you. If you love me, so do I too love you. If you really love me, do not forbid me to make this journey, but help me as far as you can. Then it may be that I shall succeed, and if I return with my purpose fulfilled, I will marry you according to the law, and take you to my own country, and we will spend the rest of our lives together in pleasure and good companionship. Help me, if you can, and give me your counsel. 
Oh, very stuff of my life, replied Jamila. I will give you things that are not in king's treasuries, which will be of the greatest use to you. First, there are the bow and arrows of his reverence, the prophet Salah. Secondly, there is the scorpion of Solomon, on whom be peace, which is a sword such as no king has, steel and stone, are one to it. If you bring it down on a rock, it will not be injured, and it will cleave whatever you strike. Thirdly, there is a dagger, which the sage Timus himself made. This is most useful, and the man who wears it will not bend under seven camels' loads. What you have to do first is to get to the home of the Simurg, and to make friends with him. If he favors you, he will take you to Walk of Quaff. If not, you will never get there. For seven seas are on the way, and they are such seas that if all the kings of the earth and all their wazirs and all their wise men considered for a thousand years, they would not be able to cross them. O oh, most delicious person, where is Simurg's house? How shall I get there? O oh, new fruit of life, you must just do what I tell you, and you must use your eyes and your brains, for if you don't, you will find yourself at the place of the Negroes, who are a bloodthirsty set, and God forbid they should lay hands on your precious person. End of section one. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas.